When I was a kid growing up in Jersey, uh, anybody who was a hoot or really funny or something, uh, we'd call them a riot. Ladies and gents, uh, this guy's a riot in more ways than one. Bob Dylan. Great paintings shouldn't be in museums. Have you ever been in a museum? Museums are cemeteries. Paintings should be on the walls of restaurants, in dime stores, in gas stations, in men's rooms. Great paintings should be where people hang out. The only thing where it's happening is on radio and records. That's where people hang out. You can't see great paintings. You pay half a million and hang one in your house, and one guest sees it. That's not art. That's a shame, a crime. Music is the only thing that's in tune with what's happening. It's not in book form. It's not on the stage. All this art they've been talking about is non-existent. It just remains on the shelf. It doesn't make anyone happier. Just think how many people would really feel great if they could see a Picasso in their daily diner. It's not the bomb that has to go, man. It's the museums. This is Bob Dylan, the show that normally celebrates the work of Bob Dylan, one song at a time, proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm your host, the Freewheeling, Rob Kelly. And this is a very special episode. As I sort of hinted at, we're not going to be talking about a song, but rather we're going to be discussing the opening of the Bob Dylan Center in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Now, I was not lucky enough to be there for the opening, but my two guests were. I'm very excited to have them both back on the show. Rob Reed. Hi, Rob. How you doing? I'm doing great. Glad to be here. Thank you for being here. And Allison Rab. Hi, Allison. Hi. Thanks for having me. Thank you both for coming back. I am so excited to talk about the Bob Dylan Center. Oh, my Lord. This, is, I, this has been you know, years in the making. We've been hearing about this thing, and now it's finally open uh, to the public. So let's, I'm going to start off initially just like the, you know, the early question for, for both of you. Um, can you give us the context of why you were there? Was it, were you covering, were you, were you there to cover it for something? Were you just there because you really wanted to be there? So, Robert, let me start with you. I well, I grew up in Tulsa, and um, I have spent um, most of the last twenty years out of Oklahoma. But I came back a couple years ago, and I work at the uh, PBS station in Oklahoma, OETA, and, and I work on a show on art. So right after I started, I immediately was writing the Bob Dylan Center. I said, I, "We want to do a show on the Bob Dylan Center," and I found out uh, at the opening I was the first person that contacted them. That was like way too early you know so <laughs> I, I i'm in oklahoma already and uh, we are going to be doing this uh um a story on it for for pbs here and then it'll be distributed to other pbs stations and it includes allison you were nice enough to talk to me uh for that so i was here i didn't have to go far i live in oklahoma city an hour and a half away from the center wow that's uh, <laughs> conveniently located Jeez. uh <laughs> allison what about you yeah, you're going to regret that, Rob, by the way, having <laughs> yet another platform to talk about Bob Dylan. Um, yeah, I went, I was there covering the events of the weekend. I'm an assistant editor at Ultimate Classic Rock, where I've become kind of a little bit of a uh, resident Dylan person there. So um, when the Dylan Center people invited me, I was super excited. You know, like you said, this has been a long time coming. And to have everybody there in one place for the first time, and I mean, God, it, nothing like that's ever happened before. So to be there for those opening center events was super exciting. That is very cool. All right. Well, that's excellent. So uh, what I want to, I'll start, I'll go backwards. And I'll also start with you. So what was when you got there? Uh, what was like the very first thing that caught your eye as you sort of walked into the hall? Oh my God, this is kind of funny. The first thing that caught my eye when I walked in the hall was Mavis Staples. I ran smack into her because I <laughs> happened to go on the day that she was taking her own tour. So I walked in and like, 
there she was like on her little scooter. It was so cute. She was walking around the center too, like pointing things out on the walls and clearly having like the time of her life, like pointing these things out like, oh, I was there. Yeah, you were. Um, so that was really cool. But even before, you know, walking through the doors, even from the outside, I was really struck by the facade of the building just in general. The portrait that they have now of Dylan up on the wall is um, you know, one of my favorite photos of him. I love that kind of stoic look that he has in that original photo. Um, and it's, you know, it's a subtle enough mural that you don't necessarily, um, like it doesn't grab your attention immediately when you're walking down the street. You kind of have to be on the other side of the street to see it. Um, it blends in just enough. But when you're standing on the opposite side of the street, I mean, it's really, it's kind of profound to see like somebody of that, you know, stature on the side of a wall like that. So I was really struck by that. That was my first immediate impression walking up to the building. Robert, what about you? That's also great that about the mural. I happened to be there when Bob Dylan played a few weeks before it opened because he played just a couple blocks down the street at the Tulsa Theater. And the next day, I walked back by the center, if my chronology's right, and the person was painting it. So when I went there, it wasn't there. And then I went back like a day later or something, and he was like halfway done. And his name is Eric Burke. I wanted to give him credit, Eric with a K. And uh, he is, it was quite, uh, you're right about that. That is one of the first things he's like, oh, this is real. You know, this is happening because I, I go by there enough that I've kind of see it start to take shape. Oh, they have a door with, you know, a picture of Dylan in it now all of a sudden. But that mural was something. I, I went, um, uh, I didn't bump into Mavis, but earlier that day, I, uh, I tried to get in the building and I couldn't figure it out. So I went around the back. So I entered through the back and got to see, I don't know, trash cans in the back. <laughs> My first impression was very strange. Uh, but I think that I got lost in it. You know, I was just like, oh my gosh, I'm in. Are they going to find me and kick me out? Am I allowed to be here? What's going on? And so I was just kind of like doing 360s. And the thing that kind of, that like settled me down is like, okay, you're here, take your time. And, and, and this happens to me in museums a lot, but um, was the plugs. Plugs, David Letterman, 1984. <laughs> On, in a museum, where you want to call it a center of museum, we'll talk about. But but they're on display, that performance on David Letterman in 1984. And I was just going, oh, I'm so happy to see this here. <laughs> and, and that kind of grounded me and got my bearings and I started going around and things like that. But that, that was the exhibit that, that I first noticed, like, oh, I'm really in here. And so are the plugs. So. <laughs> yeah, I, you mentioned about that Bob had just played there. Uh, not too long before. And then I was watching some news story and they were saying, well, Dylan didn't visit. Uh, I bet he did. He just did it in a very Bob Dylan way. He probably walked into the building with like a hoodie on and nobody knew it was him. Bob likes well, to you, do that. You know what I mean? You couldn't go in the building then, though. They were I very mean, protective. Yeah, but, I mean, but he I, would have had to get permission or, or sneak in when someone, you know, who knows, who knows. <laughs> it has been known though. So <laughs> yeah. I mean, maybe he didn't go in the building, but I'm betting at some point he just strolled, you know, after the show was over, he's like, Hey Tony, I'll be back in a couple hours. And he just sort of walked around. Um, I want to ask you, uh, Robert, you said you're from this area. Can you describe a little bit of what the area surrounding this is like? Because I've been to some other, uh, you know, I don't all call them all museums, but I've all been to I've been to some places where they're like sort of cultural centers, and they're in the middle of a neighborhood where there's nothing else around. And yeah. I'm always a little like, well, geez, nobody's gonna oh visit wow this because it's in the middle of kind of no, you know, there's no restaurants, there's no you know, what can you describe a little bit about where in Tulsa this uh, the center is? Yeah, uh, you know, 
there's the line in Murder Most Foul, um, take me back to Tulsa uh, to the scene of the crime. That is basically told standing outside of the Bob Dylan Center because two blocks, one direction, you have Kane's Ballroom, which is where Bob Wills sang Take Me Back to Tulsa in 1941. In the 30s and 40s, you had the Western swing music that was centered in Kane's radio show. But two blocks, other direction, in 1921 was the heart of, you know, the center of the Tulsa race massacre in the Greenwood district. And so the, the Bob Dylan center is located right between these two things, Americana music and America for all its warts, you know, right there. And so I found that kind of poetic. Think about that. It's called the Tulsa arts district and it's over the tracks from downtown. And I'm telling you, when I grew up, when you went over the tracks, it was desolate. There was not a lot happening there. You would go to the Tulsa Theater where I saw um, Dylan uh, recently, and it was called the Brady Theater at the time. In fact, it was called the Brady District. But Brady was an, uh, an instrumental player in the Tulsa Race Master. He was part of the Ku Klux Klan. And so that name was changed in recent years. And so what's happened in the last 15, 20 years is that arts district um, where the Bob Dylan Center is, is has drastically changed. You have giant condos going up. You have a minor league baseball field. You have the Greenwood District two blocks away where you have Greenwood Rising Museum dedicated to the Tulsa Race Massacre. You have the Hanson Brothers used to have a brewery. It didn't survive COVID, I'm afraid. Uh, but there's Guthrie Green right across two doors down as Woody Guthrie Archives. When Allison, when you were there during the opening, Mayfest was going on. There's tons of art and all this. I'm telling you, I've never seen Tulsa quite that electric, you know? But what you are is you're in the middle of a very emerging uh, neighborhood that is drastically changed from when I grew up in Tulsa and 15, 20 years ago even. So uh, it feels like a pretty good home for it, really, particularly with Woody Guthrie, two doors down. So it's the kind of place that's going to get a lot of people walking by that might decide, oh, look at this. I'm going to go yeah. I can check this, check this out. Yeah. Yeah, you definitely will see that for sure. I mean, there's, you know, restaurants and bookstores and all kinds of things, art gallery next door, all kinds of stuff going on and food trucks and all this kinds of stuff. There's a lot of activity and it sounds silly. And, you know, I'm telling you, Oklahoma at one point, you did not have things like that at all. And so it's really, it's having a moment for sure in Tulsa. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm happy to see it there. I'm happy to see it uh, in a place where it feels like it's set up to flourish, you know, I hope, you know, it feels that way. Well, that's great. All right. That's, that's good to hear. So you mentioned uh, before you, you know, we, it, the place is called the Bob Dylan Center, not the museum. I mean, I was, I pulled that quote from Bob from the Nora Ephron interview he did in 1965, where he was obviously uh, sort of being a little bit of an edgelord there about the museums and stuff. Um, but, you know, again, it's very particularly called the Bob Dylan Center. And if you go to the website, like the first kind of, tagline you see is explore creativity and so from what i understand the idea is that it is it's supposed to be i guess somewhat interactive it's supposed to engage people in their creativity through bob dylan's art so allison did you get did you get that vibe when you were there 
Yeah, I mean, obviously, one of the draws for, uh, it, there's a lot of actual physical, tangible aspects to it, where you can actually put your hands on different things, you know, the jukebox that has the song selections that Elvis Costello picked, those are supposed to change regularly. Um, the little recreation they have of the church studios, the famous, Leon Russell's famous studios in Tulsa, um, that also has very physical, you know, features that you can actually move around, that's supposed to change as well, the songs on that playlist are supposed to change. Um, one of my favorite kind of nerdy parts was, um, just at the bottom of the stairs going upstairs to the second part of the exhibit um, they have this huge magnetic wall with a bunch of words on it and you can move them around and they have you know pretty notable lyrics um, that you can switch around and do whatever you want with and I had a lot of <laughs> messing about with that thing um, so yeah I mean there's a lot of parts to it that are supposed to be like literal physical objects like that but I think when they talk about exploring creativity they're talking a little bit more about um, you know, these these song pillars that they have throughout the center, these different songs that they've selected, you know, really breaking these songs down piece by piece, bit by bit, step by step. Um, I think to a certain extent, maybe people visiting the center who don't know a whole lot about Bob Dylan or are not as interested in his career or work um, kind of maybe have this idea that Dylan is this instantaneous genius and that these things just come fully formed to him like immediately. Um, obviously, we know that that's not true at all. It goes through a whole bunch of different forms before we reach the final product. And so kind of being able to like take a song like, like Rolling Stone, which is really recognizable to a lot of people and kind of break it down literally to, okay, here's a literal piece of paper with his handwritten words on it that he originally wrote. And now here is a demo recording that he first tried it out with. And here is the jacket that he wore when he first played it on stage and literally going piece by piece into these songs um, that's a pretty profound thing for somebody to look at um, when they're visiting the center. And I think that speaks the most volumes in terms of, um, you know, thinking about your own creativity and the steps that you take to get to your end product. Hmm. All right. So when you first, when you get there, both, this is for both of you, like when you, when you get in there, how is it organized? Is it by era? Is it by the, the, the albums? I mean, how exactly, is there, a, is there a sense of being guided from one thing to the next or are you kind of deposited there and it's just up to you to kind of figure out where you want to go? Um, well, the first thing, and this is another thing I really loved when I first walked in, there's this big photo of uh, Bob and Susie Rotolo and it's this picture of Bob like pointing into the exhibit, which is really cool. And you walk <laughs> into the room, there's automatically, um, uh, you know, they have a little bit of a theater setting. There's some videos and things like that. And then you walk into, I guess, what would be considered the, the main exhibit hall. Um, and I accidentally started going backwards when I first walked in. I kind of started, like, close to rough and rowdy ways and was going the wrong way. Um, <laughs> so there aren't really, like, signposts or whatever. And actually, one of the um, audio experts, one of the guys who works from um, the audio team, was like, oh, do you, need a, do you need help? Do you need, like, a guide? <laughs> you know, one of the headsets? I was like, yeah, I think I do. Um, and so from there, you know, I figured it out and went back the other direction and you do you know it's chronological in the sense that of course it starts out in those earlier years in New York and moving from uh, Minnesota um, but then you know I in my opinion at least it kind of tapers away from that a little bit with the song pillars being in the center of the exhibit and the sort of chronological aspect being around it um, so and you know there's no real wrong way to go through it at least the way that I found it to be I and mean, I went through several times it's a, it was interesting to see. I had the same situation going in. I went the wrong direction. I went into the center, and then I saw the plugs. And I got grounded, and then I, then I started to see how it works. And that's that's fine, you know. To me, it's like that first room that you go to, where 
um, where you know, Dylan Seuss is pointing in, you know, you're in this immersive film. You know, it's like an 18-minute film. A lot of it's from the No Direction Home interviews and stuff. But it's on like these fragmented screens. And it surrounds you, three, three walls surrounding you. And then the screens, if you follow them up, become pages. And then the pages uh, gradually go into a typewriter, a notebook, um, something else that's suggesting that, hey, this is about the creative process, going back to your, you know, the, the, the earlier point about they explore the creativity. But when I went in that, you know, that, that second main room, which I think is called the Columbia Records Gallery, I think is what they, they call it, the second main room on the downstairs they, I, I was interested in the chronology. I, I just was going to mention because uh, Dylan nerds might be interested in the, 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 the chronological themes. They broke it down and named it. It's 1941 to 60s, Bob Dylan invents himself. Uh, 61 to 64, exploring the universe. Curious what you think about this. 65, 66, that thin, wild, mercury sound. 67, 74, not so quiet years. 75, 77, perpetual motion of, and I can't read my handwriting, illusion, illusion. <laughs> 78 to 83, that includes street legal, is pressing on with Jesus. 84 to 96, down the highway. 97 to 2015, things have changed. And then 2016 to present is, and it does show Shadow Kingdom, uh, is a Nobel laureate. And those are the theme. What is that? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, nine. And I was just curious, like, you know, how they got the names, how much they debated, you know, all that kind of stuff. And I'm nerdily taking the photos and thinking about what they call them. Uh, I don't have a particular. I don't know that street legal should be impressing on the Jesus. I know it has kind of a gospel sound, but <laughs> I might have I might have questioned that. But other than that, I think it's a pretty good breakdown. You know, it seems like but 2015 is an interesting mm-hmm. place to break it off. But I guess yeah. if the, no- the Nobel thing is, you know, yeah. pretty big. So I can't yeah. understand that, I guess. So, OK. Yeah. So when you get, so does it, I was going to say, does it play favorites? But I mean, it kind of has to, I'm sure that like a Rolling Stone and Highway 61 and Blood on the Tracks get, you know, more real estate than Down on the Groove. But at the same time, like, is, is, is everything sort of represented in a, in a fair shake kind of way? I mean, I don't know. They picked Man and Me from New Morning, and that was kind of an interesting choice. I mean, you're right. Like like a Rolling Stone, um, what else was that? Not Dark Yet. Um, Chimes of Freedom. Obvious choices, Tangled Up in Blue, stuff that people really want to see. But there are a couple of unexpected moments, I thought, at least. I think the chronology breaks it down so that each of those spaces is devoted to that period. So you are going to get down and groove, fans. You're going to be covered, you know, so you do have, you know, there's like a song from World Gone Wrong that didn't make it on the album, which I never listened to somehow. Did you hear it, Allison? It's like there was in that listening station, there was like an outtake from um, and I know that Ray Padgett mentioned it to me and I, I forgot to go back and check it. But so there's little kind of things like that happening. So I found it, you know, I mean, if you step back, what is this for? You know, it is for people that don't really know Dylan other than maybe like Rolling Stone or Blowing in the Wind, but it's also for people that are fans and real deep fans and then scholars. And I think that they, they must have really struggled with, with how much they would cover, but I don't think it's over the top, just Blowing in the Wind and like Rolling Stone at all. And I, I was happy about that. And then when you get upstairs in the auditorium and they have these performances, they are all pretty obscure songs, really, that they have up there. They do have Blowing in the Wind live from 81, which is fantastic, kind of a gospel-like version of that, a song that people know, but not the original song. 
And the song from like the kind of the folk period is um, Hollis Brown, you know? And so it's not exactly, you know, a household name of a song. So I think that they did, you know, a pretty good job of really spreading it out, really covering them for 60 years, you know, you know, that's what it felt like to me anyway. <laughs> I kind of like the idea of, of uh, the Dillon center being a place where, you know, you go to certain areas and it's like, well, that's, the carpet's not really worn, you know, that well-trod over like the Empire Burlesque section versus the Blood on the Jacks. Now, Allison, I'm sure you were there at the Empire Burlesque section, oh, right? Oh, in that little viewing section, I sat through the whole tape that they had of him playing up the Heartbreakers. What they played when the night comes falling from the sky, and I'm mesmerized the whole time. Like, this is what I'm here for. <laughs> it looks stunning, didn't it? So I good. mean, the, the footage was so, oh, I've never yeah. seen it like that. It was crystal clear, yeah. It was really yeah. phenomenal. I know I had heard about that there was this unreleased song from World Gone Wrong, which I did not even know existed. I knew that there were some outtakes from that record, but I didn't ever, I didn't hear the one that was there. I was like, what? And that, again, it still amazes me after the 10,000 books I've read. There's still, I didn't know he did yeah. that song. I never saw that list anywhere. Was there a lot of that? Was there a lot of stuff that neither one of you had ever heard, like even heard? Yeah, off the top of my head, I'm trying to think if there was anything that I hadn't, necessarily heard before i mean the the thing is too like i probably could have gone through that place 10 times and still yeah. missed things um yeah. i wish i could go That's back fine. again you know so I, if if you were to ask me to do it again i'm sure i'd pick up on something there was um i hadn't heard the 2019 live version of not uh, dark yet uh from i guess it's from irvine california and that is just guttingly beautiful and i i hadn't heard that till there and um there was also a lot of kind of little video footage, like when he went to Honolulu in 64 on set of a John Wayne movie. And you see John Wayne, uh, new morning, you know, footage of them recording man and me, you know, um, things like that. And it almost creeps up on you. It's like, Oh, okay. You know, what, where am I now? What am I looking at? And then you start to think, Oh, I've never seen this before. And, um, and I had that feeling a lot. And, uh, and then, yeah, I still miss the world gone wrong. You know, I miss the outtake. I don't even know the name of the song of him. It's embarrassing. But, you know, I'll go back and I'm going to beeline straight for, you know, <laughs> 1995 or whenever that is, uh, you know, to hear this outtake. And that, I literally will. That'll be the first thing I go to. I never heard that Bob was ever on the set of a John Wayne movie. Yeah, doesn't he mention it in Chronicles? I, I can't remember. Oh, I, I read yeah. about it somewhere, but and I thought it was just one of those little funny myths or something. And I was looking at it, and I have it on my phone, and and I was looking at the Honolulu footage before this, you know. And I was going trying to remember like some of my first impressions. And I was going, "That is John Wayne." Yeah, that is John. There is John Wayne. He is in a military uniform, and then the 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 text to the side of the caption says that he's on the set of. Uh, I think I wrote it down. It's a John Wayne movie, movie I've never heard of. Um, it's called uh, In Harm's Way. Oh, geez. So, Otto Preminger. Sure. That's, yeah. That's, yeah, that's, yeah. That's a great and movie. Shows, shows Dylan sitting in Otto Preminger's seat and then cheekily getting up and you see that he was sitting in the Preminger's seat. <laughs> you know, the director's chair or whatever. So, I mean, like oh. that. I could have easily missed that. You know, there was like, there was, for me, there was just constant little surprises like that. that I, I, it was great fun. I've I've never heard that. So okay, that well that leads me to something else. I just sort of thought of how much of it does it get into his private life? Does it get into that much at all, or is it just the kind the the lens is Bob Dylan, the recording artist or the creative person, and it doesn't get into necessarily you know friendships and marriages and things like that. 
I mean, I guess part of that depends on what your definition of private is. I mean, you know, what Dylan might consider private versus what we already know about all those different things. Um, but no, I mean, especially on the second floor is where you get into all of the like memorabilia and like, act, you know, postcards from fans and letters and mail and tour like items and all of those different things. So, um, no, I mean, I thought it actually struck a pretty decent balance between Bob Dylan, the recording artist, the technical recording artist, um, and the, the person, the person who actually lived a life and like had relationships with other people, even if those relationships were within the recording studio or not. Um, you know, we're certainly not talking like nitty gritty details about yeah. divorces and things like that, but, um, you know, and enough, certainly enough for the people who are looking for that element to this. No family tree with children and when they're born and things like that. Right. No. right. But I yeah. said, I, I was curious about like, how much did you think both of you that it told the Bob Dylan story as much as you can classify that? I mean, obviously it's got to give, you know, you were talking Robert about how it breaks it down into eras. I mean, you've got to mention, okay, he got married at this point and moved to Woodstock and made music that, you know, you have to give it some sense of that context. Uh, because otherwise, you know, then it's really missing a big chunk of it. So how well, it, you know, I mean, obviously the two of you know this stuff, chapter and verse, but how do you think, you know, if you can put your mind in, in the in the, in the body of someone who is kind of coming at this, you know, they're going to know who Bob Dylan is. You're not going to go to the Bob Dylan Center and not know who the guy is at all. But do you think that a person who knows him a little bit and maybe wants to learn more, they're going to, it's going to, it tells the story effectively. Like it, it delivers the idea of why this guy is so important, why he's got a whole center to himself. I mean, you'll, you'll get the basics. Like you said, you know, you'll get the, the, like, you know, the chapter points of everything that you might need to know from start to finish. But if that's all that you know, then you're certainly going to be missing out on a whole lot. And obviously there's plenty of people who don't care about those other details and that's not really an issue for them. But um you know, I would say that anybody who really wants, you're going to have to pick up another book somewhere else <laughs> or something along mm -hmm. the way, for sure, if you're really yeah. going to like dive into that. It's, uh, I mean, for someone that doesn't know Dylan at all, that goes in there, you know, they probably need to see Subterranean Homesick Blues 65, not 2022. Um, <laughs> Tambourine Man at Newport, you know, uh, maybe Simple Twist of Fate from Rolling Thunder, something like that, sitting there with a wonderful hat on, you know, and that kind of basic orientation um, is a little more elusive in a way. I mean, you're going to have to, you're going to be exposed to him talking about why he wrote song to Woody in the opening room and footage of him playing T Tangled Up in Blue in 75. And then there is the chronology, but it isn't, it, it, you know, there is that funny balance. I mean, right now I'm working on this crazy and I, I don't know what it's going to be. This story on the Bob Dylan center and I feel that weird tension myself on a much smaller scale. Is this for people that have no idea who Dylan is? Is this for Dylan fans? Is this for Dylan scholars? You know, and I, you, you, can, you can imagine that they had those conversations a lot. I really do think they did it right. I mean, I think that they did, you know, maybe they could make the merch area a little smaller and get a little, uh, a second room with, a, with some videos. I mean, show them tight connection to my heart. You know, I mean, who's not going to love that? Must be Santa. I just have videos just going for someone who's never seen them. Something like that. You could do add something like that. But I think they do a pretty good job of, you know, trying to cover bases for whoever goes in there. 
Well, you brought up a good point too, is like, it's not a very big space at all. I mean, no, the way that we're describing not. it makes it sound like it's this like kind of sprawling thing. And it, it is, I guess, to a sense, but it's really not like as large as perhaps maybe some people are anticipating. It might okay. be given the press coverage that it's gotten. I mean, you're talking about two floors basically. And yeah, like half of the first floor is the gift shop. Not that I didn't do damage in the gift shop. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, it's really not as large of a space as maybe like the press coverage might lead you to potentially believe. Okay. It's tough okay. to have that kind of small space and to put all that in there. What was the merch? Uh, what was the gift shop like? I got to hear about the gift shop. They got everything in the gift shop. <laughs> like, Our records. Yeah. <laughs> so. I uh, tons of different shirts. I got the. I ordered the pencils beforehand. I should have had it here. That, that says, you know, life's uh, about creating yourself. Um, on it, on it's the Bob Dylan Center pencil. That's the only merch I got. What merch did you get, Allison? Can you confess? <laughs> I bought a t-shirt I bought one of the t-shirts that had the Bob Dylan Center like you know logo on it or whatever um I think I bought a magnet for the fridge how stupid is that um you know a few other things like that I also really liked that he had a little specific section for I mean they had a vinyl record section with all of Dylan records and stuff like that um but they also had a little corner that had other people's records so like you know Judy Collins and John Prine and like other people who've circled around the Dylan sphere for all those years I just thought that was a sweet little touch to have other people's music too and they um and next to it they had all the different books and books that were not even Dylan books like the the memoirs of the Yakuza I don't remember what it's called I haven't read it yet or uh, you know Odyssey Homer's Odyssey they have different books Mm. that are kind of affiliated with Dylan I thought that was a really clever idea you know to do that as well like you're saying about records I don't know. Got to go back. I, what did I miss, miss in the merch? <laughs> All kinds of things. There, there's a lot. Yeah. yeah, but that speaks to this idea, again, of this being about exploring creativity and how Dylan's creativity is often tied to, mm. you know, so many other people's creativity as well. Was there, I, I, I think, I think that is a nice touch of having, you know, like the confessions of the Yakuza and yes, stuff like that. So. That's that you know, because that, you know, uh, Dylan's w- work inspired me to dig up stuff that I never would have read, but I'm like, well, this is interesting. Okay. Um, so you mentioned the videos, like how are the videos structured? Is it, can you play them yourself or are they playing sort of automatically and you sort of, are they on a loop? I mean, how does how does that work? Um, well, I mean, I guess it depends on where you are in the exhibit. They do have a, a screening room upstairs with a whole bunch of those other you know, videos on a loop. Um, but probably my favorite part of the whole thing is having the audio touch points through the whole thing. You get an audio headset when you first walk in. Um, I don't know if either of you guys or anyone listening has been to the David Bowie is exhibit when that was running a few years ago, it's run, um, the same people who did the audio touch points for that exhibit did the ones for this one, um, which is incredibly cool. So you've just got this little box that you can take around with you and touch the different points and whatever you happen to be looking at is what you're going to then hear in your headphones. So it's incredibly interactive in that sense. Um, so you really have the control over what you're listening to when you're walking through um, and whether, you know, you stand in front of that screen then for the whole like 18 minutes or whatever it is the video is, or you, you know, maybe move on quicker than that. It, it's cool to have that kind of control over, over, you know, your work through the exhibit. Tons of videos. I didn't count, you know, like every kind of chron- chronological stop or at least most of them not all of them has a little video there, like in a screen that you can tap into. And then the, the, the song, the six song stations also has one or two like kind of videos and upstairs there's that auditorium, like Allison was saying, which I just, you know, 
couldn't get enough of. It looked fantastic. Great, great stuff um, up there. I'm trying to think what there was. I mean, Baby, Let Me Fall You Down from 66, Hollis Brown, you know, um, Blown in the Wind, 81. Uh, I Pity the Poor Immigrant from 76 mm. in the Hard Rain Tour. I'm missing a few things. The Tom Petty performance, he said earlier. So it was an endless, you know, I wanted to see every second of it. And I, I know that I miss stuff, you know. So you have to go back and play, watch the whole thing. You know, it takes some time. I've always heard that there were like, once in a while I've read that like he's done videos for songs and I'm like, where I've never, I've never seen that video. Where's that video? Uh, you know, and I keep thinking, is that where this stuff's going to show up eventually at a place like this where they're going to dig that, you know, the Columbia's going to dig it out of the vault and throw it out there. Cause I'm just like, it's got to exist. I mean, I keep thinking like when that footage got released uh, for the bootleg series, the last bootleg series of Bob in the studio, recording the yep. infidel songs yep. and i'm like how are we just seeing this now how, how is this how is all of this high def footage of bob dylan recording live been sitting in a vault somewhere for 40 years that's you know and it just makes me think well then geez, they must have so much stuff to perm through for the center mm. that obviously uh yeah they're good they're, I'm, I'm presuming it's going to change over time did you get any sense of that is like i mean i presumably uh hopefully there's more records to come and like they'll add things to it is it yeah do you get that sense too that it's something that you know if you go to it two years from now it's going to be exactly the same or it's going to maybe morph into other things uh no they've made that pretty explicitly clear that a lot of that stuff in there is going to change i mean like i said the the songs in the church studio replica are going to change the songs in the jukebox that they have are going to change um i I think the actual song pillars themselves are going to change eventually what kind of a rotating basis that's going to be on um part of the exhibit upstairs is also going to change as well different artists in residence and that kind of thing um so yeah i mean they've they've made it pretty clear that this is going to be a living breathing kind of center in that sense which is great i hope that they they kind of get digital a little bit you know Mm -hmm. it's like um you know a lot of museums are trying to figure out what to do in the 21st century and i use the m word museum but you know like maybe there's a way to have like online exhibits of some of these videos to add to what they have there i I would love to see them do more of that kind of thing because like you said i mean there's really no end to what someone dorky like us would probably want to see but at the same time you could almost like what kind of dylan fan are you and you answer three questions and it curates five video things to see you know so some people are seeing blowing in the wind or something like that some people are seeing you know i don't know a studio recording of emotionally yours or something like that which i would love to see um but you know i don't know i i hope that I, I do think it is a museum, really, you know, uh, I, you know, to go back to that M word, because the, it's not all that it is, but for the public, you know, you go in there and it is, you know, what is a museum? I mean, you know, it's a, you know, it's a place, uh, you know, to, that curates kind of ideas and educates and creates conversation and community to some degree. And, and they, they cover that quite well and there is a chronology and so i just hope that they think about ways to 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 share more of it soon because i don't want to wait two years you know (laughs) (laughs) you know i want to see this stuff you know you said about the technological aspects and like bringing some more of that stuff one of my favorite parts was the you know they've got right now all three of the um, blood on the tracks notebooks like on display but they've turned it into like a digital flip book of sorts that you can actually like touch a screen and flip the pages digitally which is really really wow that's pretty cool 
Yeah. Um, so that, I mean, like something like that with maybe some other like physical artifacts that we can't actually physically touch and turning them into, and you know, even if you put yeah. something like that online and then people all over the world could obviously see it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, kind of making that leap would be really interesting. On, on the, the notebooks that have been called the Holy Grail, the three tangled leper, uh, blood on the tracks notebooks. And I was looking through, and you may know this, maybe everyone knows what I'm about to say, but there on it, there was some lyrics on one of the pages. I, I looked at my photo and kind of closing up, uh, you know, uh, zooming in to see what it was said. And there, there was a few lines that was idiot limbs and just below it. And I'm going to read this. I hope, I hope this is all right. <laughs> it's like this exclamation point five to nothing bottom of the ninth zero hits first ball for a single followed by Joe luck who hits another one. Park uh, steps up, hits the first uh, uh, bat for a home run, scores five to three. I've looked up those names. I, I don't think they're baseball players. Um, <laughs> Horatio Alger has a book called Joe's Luck about a kid who goes from New York to California to make it. Are these lyrics about baseball? I don't. <laughs> and then there was a baseball Joe book in 1914. And I, I was I was trying to go, okay, who was it? Was it like the twins? Do they have someone named Parka? You know, what is it? And I couldn't find it. I don't know if he was just <laughs> listening to baseball and just writing that. I, I, it cracks me up. I, you know, maybe I've people always, have just already decoded this, but I, I thought that was great. I've always wondered about the notebooks, whether uh, how sacrosanct they were, because yeah. it's like in the middle of writing, you know, lyrics to some of the most powerful songs in the in the history of recorded music. Was there like eggs, milk? <laughs> bread you know and then like yeah. you know i mean like was he treating the notebooks like that or was the you know were the lyric notebooks they were the lyric notebooks and then the other thing was oh i, I need to go pick up i need new shoes i need to get and if that <laughs> stuff was in there does that stuff get torn out because you know we don't need the, that recorded for posterity or anything like that so. oh my God. was there anything there for either one of you that you were a little shocked that was that that maybe bob would have allowed to be there. I'm kind of amazed that he allows the notebooks because yeah, they're lyrics, but at the same time, that feels so private to me that, that he would allow you, you know, people to see what was in his brain, especially for that record of all the records. So was there, was there anything in there that you, that felt like, wow, they really, that, that must've come, you know, directly from, uh, you know, his, uh, his back room at the Malibu estate. <laughs> yeah, I think the notebooks definitely were the one thing that I thought that that I mean, because and everybody was talking about it too. Everybody was like, "You got to go see the notebooks." Like it was some kind of like you said, the holy grail of this exhibit. Um, so that was a little bit surprising. But also upstairs to the um, and other people have mentioned this too in a lot of their press coverage and whatnot. The bag of mail that he had received mostly after the 1966 motorcycle crash and all of these different get well soon cards from fans and things like that. Wow. Um, you know, it was reported though that, you know, Dylan never touched that mail, never opened it, never looked at it, never seen it before. And it was there in the case. And it was just kind of like, you know, I don't know exactly what steps were taken from, you know, where that bag of mail came from exactly and who was in charge of that and like who decided to put that in that case there. But that one also kind of surprised me a little bit just because it seemed like, you know, it, it's a really interesting touch to see, but I wasn't necessarily expecting to see it in the exhibit. Hmm. I don't know what kind of process, if any, there was for him personally to go through any of that, like particularly those notebooks, like maybe he does not want people to know about Joe Luck because he has a Joe Luck book about baseball coming or something. I have no idea, <laughs> but it feels like both of those places, there could be some kind of 
intimacy that he may not want out. And it could be as simple as choose to buy. Maybe he wouldn't want that. That feels like the place. But they must have quite a system to get it out public versus what's behind the scenes, you know. I did see the list of stuff. If you're a scholar that you could go through and, you know, and this was like about a year and a half ago or something, I was going through it. And there's one thing I really, really want to see. And I had hoped that I would be able to see it before this call. And I, I haven't, I don't think it's going to happen, but he has unpublished lyrics for something called John Lennon's hat. And I want to read those lyrics. <laughs> I do. I just do. I and do. Um, I, is it around 66? Is it, is it connected to Pillbox Hat? Is it done later? I can't remember if it said a time when it was written. I just want to see what what hat is he talking about? Um, you know, uh, but that that would be my first choice. But I, there's all these things like when I don't know if you've seen or not, but that that the scholars access and it, it lists just you know files of what you can get folders you can access and then you have to apply to go into the archives and and to review this and. Uh, for our story, we tried to see if we could do something like that, but it's uh, there's too much going on, and they're a little bit protective about having any cameras, and understandably so, in the archives, so we weren't able to do that, but mm. maybe one day. I wonder, you know, you're, you're mentioning, Alison, the, the letters, and I have to assume that a lot of letters during the years uh, ended up in the offices of Columbia Records, because if you wanted to write a letter to Bob Dylan, where else are you going to send it? Yeah. Uh, you know, it's not like you could know where his house is. I mean, you know where it's out, you know, whatever. But like, I, it's kind of curious. Like, I wonder how much of a pack rat Bob is as a person. You know, does he keep this stuff? Uh, does he, is he, or is he not that way? Is he somebody who tosses stuff? I mean, you got to think at a certain point, once you've, once you've become Bob Dylan, things take a historical, things take on a historical value that don't if you're just sort of a regular person. But I got to wonder if Bob himself is terribly, uh, you know, uh, is Bob Dylan a hoarder? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I hope he's not a hoarder. <laughs> you know, hopefully, he's not that. But I just wonder he if. I mean, there are some musicians who obviously have diligently archived their life, and they've dug it up, and they're you know either that's because they're they they know maybe there's some money in it, or that's that's just their naturally their inclination. I mean, I think about like Stanley Kubrick, right? I heard about like Stanley Kubrick supposedly took the original ending to The Shining and literally burned the film. I mean, literally mm -hmm. took it out to the backyard and set it on fire. So it does not exist. Now, that's somebody who obviously isn't regarding his cast-offs as particularly worthy because he's making sure no human ever sees it ever again. But Bob, maybe he's not that way. Maybe he's, you know, I mean, obviously if he's hoarding, not hoarding, mm -hmm. that word again, but if he's saving the Blood on the Tracks notebooks... That's, you know, on some level, he's got it in his brain of like, oh, I want to have this material somewhere. They, you know, but a lot of the collection did come from collectors um, uh, who we got to meet, which was a real highlight. You know, Bill Nagel and uh, Mitch mm -hmm. Blank were there, uh, presumably others. And a lot are these, you know, tapes and programs and things. Some of it kind of, you know, fairly illegally, <laughs> you know, there's a video of, 1981 grooms uh grooms waiting at the altar that bill nagel nagel uh shot in i'm sorry in san francisco you know this is just you know illegal footage you know i don't know how to say it bootleg footage right video footage of mike bloomfield's last performance wow. and um and so they shows dylan and him hugging at the end of this performance and stuff that's amazing to have so you know i talked to 
Sean Latham, the director of the Dillon Institute, which is part of the University of Tulsa that works with archives a lot. And it was this Dillon Institute was kind of created when they when it was announced that the archives were coming to Tulsa. And he had previously worked with um, uh, James Joyce because the James Joyce archives are at Tulsa. What is going on in Tulsa water? Uh, so James Joyce and Dylan are in, at TU. Um, anyway, so he was saying that Dylan had no idea to say this stuff, you know, mm. and that so much of it, it would not be as rich. This is what he said at all without all these individual collectors and collecting things for 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years. And, and so who knows? I don't even know. Maybe, you know, Allison, if those notebooks were from Dylan or if they passed along to other places and came back, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, at least one of them had come from the Morgan library in New York, which had nothing to do with Dylan whatsoever. So, I mean, that's one third of it right there, but yeah, I mean, God only knows how the the other two get made it there. If I can risk an anecdote and I don't know if this is bad of me to say, but I know someone that uh, works uh, kind of owns this strange historic bookstore in Oregon and tells of one time of Dylan coming there. Uh, maybe 10 years ago and looking for old magazines that had articles about him. Then he had someone go in and buy them. I, if, if this is catty <laughs> of me to, to, to say, I don't know. I'm not trying Bob, if you're watching, I, I, you know, it's totally fine. I did it. We can edit this out, but um, we're but not editing this me, out, Robert. No, what are you talking? About? <laughs> it, it makes me think that, you know, this is a person that, you know, why did he do that? You know, if it's true, I, I believe it is. You know, this is a person that is thinking to some degree of his legacy or how he's represented. It may have been for some project. I don't know. But specifically was looking at like old news weeks from the 70s that mentioned or something like that. That's wow. fascinating to me, you yeah. know. So maybe that is a person that hoards a little. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> and also, you know, somebody who puts out, you know, bootleg series the way that Dylan does, yeah. the way that nobody else does, to me just like yeah. you know, says everything that you need to know in and of itself. Like he clearly, yeah. he knew that was valuable. So. Well, that, yeah, that's actually, that's, that leads in perfectly to something else I, I wanted to, to ask you about. How much does it engage um, with his fandom? And when I mean engage with, I mean, does it, does it devote some part of itself to, the fandom because obviously so much of so much of his of his enduring legend is the fandom is you know as you're talking about is you know uh somebody recording uh a 1981 concert and and holding it and you know bob is always kind of from what we've heard until the bootleg series which again is sort of a tacit admission like all right you want to hear this stuff everybody but i'd always heard about like the grateful dead used to have sections of their concerts of their the the floor of their concerts where you could her tapers the, the tapers you know i mean it was made you know hey if you want to tape it stand here and you'll get a good you know quality bob never did something like that but i mean how much does it talk about that or does it at all about like you know well yeah part of the reason some of this stuff is here is because there's this massive ongoing throng of people who care about this stuff to this, to this molecular level. I mean, not to like beat a dead horse or whatever, but I think the closest thing would be those fan letters in, in mm-hmm. the case. I mean, that's kind of the closest that you might come to recognizing the, the like worldwide impact that someone like him had. But beyond that, I mean, I can't really think of anything more specific that kind of touches on that idea beyond the fact that, you know, the people who run this center and operate the center and work at the center currently are all fans in and of themselves. You know, I mean, there's that part of it too, but beyond the, 
you know, the fan letters, I can't really think of anything more specific than that. The, the whole, the people that came was a, a fantastic time. You know, like I was really lucky, you know, to have been there to meet you, Allison, to meet all these, you know, collectors and different people. Oh, there's a guy from Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and I was just putting down the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Oh, my gosh, but he wasn't mad, fortunately. All these different people you're seeing, and it just made me think about that documentary, Heavy Metal Parking Lot. Have you all ever seen that? No, I've never seen that. So it's like in the 80s. It's grainy. It was shot in some BS camcorder at a Judas Priest concert, and it's like 27 minutes in the parking lot. And it's just hanging out with stoners of the 80s, about to see Judas Priest, as you do. And I just kind of wanted to go on the road and just start hanging out with these collectors and Dylanologists and stuff and do, you know, Bob Dylan parking lot. Because I do think that, going to your question, there is an aspect of it that is really amazing and powerful. It has the danger when people are going through trash cans and things like that or breaking into someone's home. But at the same time, for people that are trying to understand what Dylan means now in his ninth decade, to see this kind of devotion on a a serious and academic level and a respectful level is really kind of powerful. And it it would have been, I don't know that it works for what the center is trying to accomplish, but it would have been interesting to have something a little bit, and maybe I missed it, about the collectors themselves. That, That would be an interesting thing to so maybe they could, you know, put online or something like that or add at some point because it, it is kind of powerful. And these people are being invited. Mitch Blank is being invited. He said he used to get in trouble with security. He's being invited in, you know, <laughs> red carpet in Tulsa for this, you know, time, you know, so, you know, things have changed. We have this because of efforts of people like himself, you know, so. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think about probably, you know, the first time I ever got on the internet and I knew I could like search for things. Bob Dylan was probably the first thing I ever looked at. And one of the first things I ever found that I felt was of use, I was like, oh, the internet's going to be useful for this, was the Bob links. And it had mm-hmm. the set lists because this was, I'm old enough to have been going to concerts before the internet. And I had to go to a concert and just mentally keep a list of the songs in my head and hopefully, mm-hmm. and jot them down as soon as I could to say, oh, he did Leopard Skin and then he did, <laughs> okay, wait, what was, what was the encore? You know, and then to to know that there was somebody obsessive enough, (laughs) multiple people's obsessive enough to want to document this the minute it happened was was revelatory. You know, it really was. I was like, wow, this is great. And that, you know, it helped keep my fandom alive a little bit. Not that it ever would have died out, but it was it was great to be able to see Bob live. And no, I could go on in the internet. I mean, it would take 12 minutes for the AOL to dial up and the screeching and everything else. But I'd be able to do it and then say, ah, there's the set list I just saw. Now I know it's in a permanent spot. I don't have to remember it. Uh, and that was, a, that, that was a big deal, you know? That was a really, really big deal. And sort of related to that, um, how much is the never-ending tour represented? Because I still think that that is under underrepresented by his label by whoever decides these things i mean the guy has been on tour nonstop for 30 years how many shows now and and yet there is no like never-ending tour live album there is no never-ending tour bootleg series you know it, it it seems amazing to me that that has not been how many how many bands of his stature have had six live albums in the last 20 years and Bob basically has not. So how much of yeah. 
how how much is the Neverending Tour given space there? I mean, not a whole lot, but that's not really anybody's fault. Obviously, again, you only have so much space to work with. In the upstairs section, um, as you kind of work your way back towards the like back of the building, um, you know, they kind of section it off into different like eras. They've got the like, you know, the Tom Petty band and a bunch of Tom Petty like, you know, items and memorabilia, that kind of thing. And like Grateful Dead over here and that kind of thing. Um, but to be honest, I mean, they're small cases. There's not a whole lot to them. You know, they don't necessarily go into depth about um, what the dynamics of each tour were like and what exactly was going on at each point in time. It's kind of just like, here's a bunch of stuff from the, you know, this particular tour. Here's like a tour jacket or whatever, um, which by the way, was one of my favorite items. They have this like oh, yeah. black satin, like 1978 tour jacket. I want it so bad. I was going to break the glass. Um, <laughs> but beyond that, I mean, like, you know, you kind of already, and that, you know, goes back to what you were talking about earlier is that if you really want the story behind those things, you're going to have to go elsewhere for it. Maybe it goes back to creativity. For some reason, they didn't want to go into Dylan the performer as much or something. I haven't thought this at all. And I hadn't even thought about it. I don't know that there is something that says never-ending tour in, you know, what is that period called, you know, or something like that. I don't even remember it being referred to in the chronology. I assume I missed it, but but maybe that's, you know, because they're always trying to land towards, you know, the stress of how he makes stuff, the decisions, the creative process, the evolution of songs. I don't know. That's a good example of evolution of songs, though. I, it's amazing to me all the live albums he made up until the time that it started. And he has unplugged his only live album in my recollection. Maybe Dead came out after the ne- never-ending tour started. But um, gosh, I'm just begging for that. I mean, how many songs has he released that are live from that period? I mean, he has... Uh, high water, you know, on Telltale Signs, which is fantastic. The guitar work alone just kills me. Uh, what else has, you know, has been released officially? Uh, it's amazing. I'm looking forward to that. Bootleg series, you know, five CD, you know, 11 uh, yeah, record I mean, set. I would love the, that. The, the box set that you could release yeah. from that would be gargantuan. I mean, it would, mm. and, and then, you know, maybe there's some issues with what Columbia slash whoever owns it now knows they can monetize it and they don't want it all, you know, in a place in, in Oklahoma where you could listen to it all. But that's interesting to me because I just, it's, you think about how a lot of other artists, again, of his stature do very bifurcated tours Mm -hmm. and then they're gone for a while and he just keeps going. I mean, just keeps going. And, and it's uh, down the street from at the Woody Guthrie Center at the time that this was all going on, they right now have an exhibit of Bruce Springsteen Live, which is literally focused on like Bruce Springsteen Live, like on tour, a lot of those different artifacts, you know, guitars, instruments. Um, it's a relatively small exhibit, but it, it strictly does more focus on the experience of Bruce Springsteen, like moving from one point to the next, like being on tour. So it would have been interesting to see something like that in regards to Dylan. But, you know, I agree. I don't remember ever seeing actually like something specific talking about the never ending tour, like that specific phrase, maybe, you know, it was probably mentioned in passing in some other things, but especially now, like you say that he is in this like next decade of his career and he's still doing this. You would think that that might've been a little bit more of a crucial part of it, but I mean, who knows? Maybe that'll change. Maybe that'll be one of the parts of it that will end up changing. Does he ever say never ending tour? That's a good question. I don't know. He I don't know if he does. He mentions it in the liner notes to World Gone Wrong uh, and dismisses it and says, 
uh, something like ignore that never-ending tour chatter that ended a long time ago. <laughs> and he and he starts mentioning the names of all the tours he's been on, and they're all completely joke names. The Money Never Runs Out tour, <laughs> the Why Do You Look at Me Show Strangely tour. I mean, clearly, he's <laughs> just making these up off the top of his head. So, um, okay. How much does how much space does Tony Garnier get? Does he how much does he show up in this thing? Not a whole lot. Huh. <laughs> no. Or at least no. not any great, like super memorable um interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the guy's been playing with him longer than anybody else in history. I would think that yeah. <laughs> there's a lot of characters yeah. though in the Dylan sphere that you would think might potentially get a little bit more of a spotlight so to speak, but um not not so much. Huh. Maybe uh, one day they will go, you know, that, that changing exhibit area where the Jerry Schatzberg uh, photos are will be about players of Dylan, you know, and different people have played with him. Can you imagine that as like a temporary exhibit there that just kind of Rob Stone, you know, whatever it is. That would be, <laughs> I'd love to see that. Mm-hmm. Hey, we should be curators. Yeah, we should be planning. You know. Honestly. <laughs> what about I'm going to send them a fax. How much of the Woolberries are, are there? Um, they had some, and this was one of my other favorite items, you know, some note cards and stuff from George Harrison. There was one really, really cute one where he wrote like, oh, here are the, you know, like first mixes of the, you know, first Wilbur's record. Like, let me know what you think. And like writing all these <laughs> little love notes to Bob Dylan. Um, so, you know, there's those kinds of mentions, but that too is in the section of, you know, it's kind of like this case by case, small case by small case, um, little snippets into these windows of time that again, like if you don't already know a bunch of that backstory or if you don't go and then seek it out, um, you might be like, what, what the hell happened there? Like, why is Jeff Lynn involved in this? And like, where did all (laughs) other people come from? You know, like you might be a little bit confused, the casual fan. I got to wonder, um, like some of you wonder, like the letters from George Harrison, right? I mean, those are clearly in Bob's possession, but you got to wonder, like, did other people have stuff and do they have to run it by Bob? You know, like, you know what I mean? If somebody else has something from him, is it okay to put out? I mean, it, it he has not given, as far as I know, right, any interviews or anything about this? He's not spoken at all publicly about, about the sun? Uh-huh. No, he did speak to um, Vanity Fair. Well, he spoke to, oh my God, and now I'm... Douglas Brinkley? Did he talk to yes. Doug Brinkley? Yes. Is that what that was? Okay, I, yeah. you know, that was the extent of, of the whole thing. Wow. That's when he said he likes it in the hum of the heartland, right? That's right. That's right. That's the quote. That's right. I, I love it. That. I okay. forgot that. That was great. Um, is it entirely positive? Is there any point where they get into any sort of negative? Not. I mean, obviously, they're not going to be like, boy, that that takes suck too. They're not going to get into that, but just, is there any sort of talking about some down points in the career or anything like that? Or does it, is it just, they don't, they just don't bother to get into sort of the ephemera of what was popular and what wasn't. There's not a whole lot of self portrait in the exhibit. I'll say that. <laughs> <laughs> but sure. yeah. Um, no, I mean, I can't think of anything off the top of my head that would be inherently um, critical, so to speak. No. The eighties, uh, the, the going back. This is my dorkiness. So the nineteen eighty four to nineteen ninety six period was called down the highway. <laughs> so you might read that however you want, because there was some, you know, but there was nothing. I didn't see anything remotely like why did he say that at Live Aid, you know, or you know what was going on with down in the group, you know, um, why was there electronic drums on Empire Burlesque, you know, nothing like that at all. I, I couldn't say. 
something I like you know, anything. unbelievably, Blind McTell, Bully McTell did not make the record. You exactly know, like that kind of thing. So. Yeah. I mean, I guess maybe the yeah. closest that you would get would be down downstairs in the whole like going electric section and like what that meant to different people, but that's not an yeah. inherently you know critical thing. That's just a, a a chapter point, so to speak. Right. Right. Okay. Yeah, it's true. Wow. So, okay, um, as, we're, as we're sort of wrapping up here, uh, Robert, let me start with you. What was your, do you have a favorite piece of, of Dylan Obscura that you found there? It could either be something that's very obscure or just something yeah. that you particularly were like, oh, that, yeah, that's great. Well, I, I'm stealing Allison's, uh, but since he asked me first, I get it. It's the 1978 <laughs> U.S. Tour jacket. It's, it's this glimmering black satin on the back of it is stitched. Uh, a blonde woman on top of a, a Pegasus flying. And there was oh, a, that you know, thing. Okay, yes. <laughs> Bob Dylan, it's gold. There's like an upside-down pyramid behind a circle. <laughs> yes, I want that. Yes, I might risk crime, you know, to have that. If I can't get that, I'd like the street cut it out, promo above it. I'm a, I'm, uh, I have a street legal problem. And so those little kind of 3D cardboard cutouts, I won't be too ambitious, I'd like one of those, you know, the jacket I, I probably can't get, but I'd like one of those. So, you know, little things, there's so many things like that. A, a George Harrison letter, like you're saying, there was one that was like, he said, you know, uh, happy harmonica, uh, Merry Christmas. He said, if dogs run free, why don't we? And he signed it. Love the fab one. And he had a drawing of dogs and stuff. This is the char- char- most charming thing you've ever seen. I'll take that. Okay. Yeah, anything would be pretty good if the Dylan Center wants exactly. to offer up any of this stuff for free. That that would be just fine. I want that jacket so badly. <laughs> um, I loved, yeah, the notes from George Harrison. And also, you know, they had some additional, like, Christmas cards from each of the Beatles that were signed by, you know, like, Linda and Paul and the whole nine yards. That was really cute. Um, if I want to get technical, really, I, they had one of the guitars that was played on, on Tangled Up in Blue. I would love to own that instrument so badly. I think that would be incredibly cool. Um, so, and actually that was another thing I was expecting to see a few more instruments in the exhibit too. There weren't as many of those. I don't know if those are as under, you know, tight lock and key as other things. Maybe that's the case, but I would love to have that guitar. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, yeah, boy, that you would think that if the gift shop, right, is such a big part of it. And of course it is like they would, they could devote a little space to the obscure stuff like the satin jacket. Like, you know what? Let's make yeah. 10 of these and see if we sell them. And you know you'd sell them because those are the diehard fans. Oh, that's yeah. smart. You should, you should email them about that. If they could do like yeah. a, like a jacket series. That's, that's a great idea. Yeah. I mean, I'll they, start saving up. Yeah. I mean, that's your audience. <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean, think about all the ancillary material that Columbia Records must have had to make in the last 50 years. And you can't find this stuff anymore. Like you're talking about that street legal thing. You know what I mean? It's like that stuff just that stuff was never meant to be kept and it just gets thrown out. You know what I mean? I, I, I would love to find that kind of stuff. I would if I ever saw that kind of thing on eBay, I would buy it, you know, because it's like, wow, that's, you know, some little, uh, you know, like a you know, like a uh, like a mobile that hangs in a record store that's supposed to sell. And you know, think how many records the guy's been putting out over the years. So. That's really, really fascinating. So, OK, so like I said, we're, we're, we're wrapping up here. I mean, again, there's so much more we could sort of talk about this the center but overall uh and and alice i'll let you go first um like overall what were you satisfied with it you were happy with it was it and maybe you know it can't be everything that you maybe imagine because your imagination is always kind of bigger than 
what the reality is. But what was you, as you were leaving it and knowing, you know, okay, I'm going home now. Were you overall satisfied with it? You felt like it was what you hoped it would be? Um, yeah, I mean, I had tried to go into it with as few expectations as I possibly could. I mean, I don't know how successful I was in that, but I think kind of going back to what Robert was talking about, it was, you know, it was really cool to see all the physical objects. It was really cool to stand in the center. It's, it's a remarkable space. They've done a fantastic job with it. But I think for me, even it was more impactful to be surrounded by so many other people at the same time in the same place and all of us being so excited and so happy to be there. And that's not just going to be, you know, an opening weekend thing. That's going to happen any weekend that there are sure. people inside the Bob Dylan center. Um, presumably the people that are in it are all Bob Dylan fans and they're just excited to see that. So, um, you know, having that kind of just communal moment and that communal sense the whole weekend was really powerful and I had a fantastic time. That's great. Robert? Well, it was a gift, you know, to be there around that time. It was particularly magical. I've been back a couple times since then, uh, just getting some kind of footage for the, what we're working on. So I haven't really gone as a tourist, so to speak. Um, and it's always busy. And so there is, um, there are going to be people. Like the last time I was there, there was someone that came from Chicago that was talking, and I only heard part of the conversation. And it was a conversation that would have been wonderful to be a part of. And you get the sense that there is going to be this community that's around you when you go through it, whenever you do, that is a huge thing for sure. I'm, I'm happy, you know, with it. You know, I was thinking about this. I was kind of brainstorming. What are the best museums I've ever been to? What is it about? I remember them, you know, there usually there's some kind of amazing architecture or, or something like this, or there's some kind of funny takeaway that when you think back, it changed how you saw that subject to some degree. And, you know, I don't know, what changed for me necessarily about Dylan other than seeing stuff that I hadn't seen that I'm, I'm, you know, just sitting there and watching, you know, uh, when the nights uh, comes falling from the sky and it's crystal clear and it's gorgeous. I just couldn't be happier or seeing blowing the wind in 81 single camera roaming on stage, gospel kind of version of the song, wonderful vocal delivery by Dylan. And I was just going, I've never seen this. This is fantastic. So there are things like that on a personal level, on a bigger scale, how that will affect other people. We'll wait and see, you know, how is it going to turn, you know, people into huge Dylan freaks or what? I don't know what will happen, but um, I think that they did a, a, a quite a good job. And uh, you know, i am probably go and get a membership. I haven't done it yet. I want the card in my wallet. You know? <laughs> Every time I'm Tulsa, I'm going in. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, what, you, what other, you know, when would you think you'd have the opportunity to say, I'm literally a card-carrying member of, like, a exactly. Bob Dylan fan club? I mean, there it is, you know. Um, yeah. I Well, I, I will say, you know, for myself, um, why, what kind of nerd I am is that I've mentioned on the show before, I'm getting married in October. So in lieu of a bachelor party, my best friend, Dan, who I've been seeing Bob Dylan concerts with for a quarter century now, we're going to go to the Tulsa Center. That's going to be my bachelor party in lieu I love of any lieu in the, you know, that's in lieu of some other, what do I care? I don't, what do I go to a strip club? I'm an old man. What are you talking about? I don't do that shit. Um, so we decided that's what we're going to do. And I think we're going to go probably around my birthday, maybe, or something like that's going to cut a time up, but that's what, that's what it's going to be. So I'm looking forward to seeing it for myself, but I really, really appreciate the two of you kind of coming on and sort of being a sort of pod Dylan correspondence as it were to, to, to report back and let people know what you thought of it. So both of you, again, it just means the world to me that you would come back and, and uh, talk about the, the center for me and, and relay some of your experiences. So thank you both 
so much for doing this. Thank you so much. Truly a pleasure. Thanks for, thanks for having us and let me know when you're in Oklahoma. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'll really show too. you some Oklahoma things. Very cool. <laughs> oh, it sounds really cool. So, okay. Um, so, uh, Robert, why don't you tell people where they can find you out on the internet? Uh, on Twitter, I'm on read on travel for my travel days, R-E-I-D. Um, but I would encourage people, if you want to see Allison Rapp and many others talk about the Bob Jones Center, I'm in it as well. Um, uh, but you can fast forward to that part. Uh, there will be a Bob Dylan page on Oklahoma PBS, O-E-T-A dot TV slash Bob Dylan. And there'll be the story about the Dylan Center as well as the bonus footage where I ask people such as Allison, what's Bob Dylan's song they would send to space, to the universe, for the, great, for everything question. to know. <laughs> yes. And no one answered the same thing. And I asked, I don't know, nine people. I have to record my answer because I'm going to put it in because, damn it, I'm doing it. So I'm going to put it one in. But um, the uh, probably wigwam. The, um, but, yeah, at OETA. Sorry, OETA.tv slash Bob Dylan. After June 2nd, you can see uh, that uh, our story on the Bob Dylan Center. Very cool. Allison? Yeah. Um, if you want to read any of my writing about Bob Dylan or a whole bunch of other things, uh, that's ultimateclassicrock.com. And I'm also on Twitter at, at AllisonRap22. Um, where I put a whole lot more <laughs> opinions about that. <Boston. laughs> uh, we I, we can't end the show without uh, saying you you just wrote an article about uh, Bob's your you picked one song from every record. Oh, yeah. And oh. you know I got you really took the bit in your teeth there, Allison, because <laughs> you're obviously <laughs> oh. you know everyone has an opinion, <laughs> and everyone everyone of course on Twitter feels the need to tell you. Uh, their opinion about it, but uh, I, I admire your guts and some of your picks. I can't say I agree with all of them, but I, I, I have to—I will say—I I admired the choices. Thank you. Well, you know, the second I took that on, I thought, "Oh God, I'm going to have to change my address or something." <laughs> <laughs> it's go well, but I, I, you know, the thing about that list that you know it was obviously fun for me to do, but I loved seeing everybody start talking about it online and start comparing yeah. notes about what they like from different albums, and it was just so fun to see everybody chattering away about those things trying to think i saw the list very well done i'm, I'm trying to think which one um surprised me the most <laughs> maybe maybe sad-eyed lady is a little surprising to me what do you have for self-portrait days of 49 uh-huh yeah that's good so yeah <laughs> okay but you it's, can be it's, mean. It's just tell me what you really think yeah <laughs> days of 49 is great yeah Jolly, yeah no that's crew. great yeah that's great uh, yeah, I don't know what my favorite would be. I like Pretty Sarah, but that's on a, another self-portrait, so it doesn't count. But anyway, I, it, they're irresistible to do. And it's great if people get upset because it's funny. Well, make your own list, you know? Yeah, this is my list, you know? No big deal. You know, that yeah. was great. Exactly. Good. Yeah. good idea. Uh, yeah, it was, it, was a, it was a really, really great piece. So, again, thank you both for, for coming on. I really appreciate it. Uh, of course, everybody, you can find back episodes of this show on our website, findwaterpodcast.com. You can subscribe to the show on any podcatcher of your choice. And if you want to support Pod Dylan as part of the Fine Water Podcast Network, please go to patreon.com slash fwpodcast, like these fine folks have done. Robert Ward, Steve Cronin, Max Hutzel, George Doherty, Joaquin Meckel, Paul Ruther, and Superman's pal Henry Bernstein. I really appreciate it for the support of Pod Dylan. So that's going to do it. Thanks, everybody, for listening, and we will see you later. Bye. We are far less interested in saying, ha, we got this guy figured out. Because what's so wonderful about Dylan, among much else, is the elusiveness. The elusiveness is the point. 
The center affirms Dylan's long-held view that he is the last person to tell you what his songs mean. Like all good art, we find meaning by wrestling with the words ourselves. Meanwhile, Bob Dylan keeps moving on. Thank you.